The Moment Has Arrived. I am Tom Dickinson, and this is another episode of The Moment, a podcast about the science fiction television show, Doctor Who. Each week on this podcast, I have been asking a different guest to join me to discuss one particular moment from an episode of Doctor Who, any episode of Doctor Who, that they have strong feelings about or that provoked a strong reaction. This time, I am joined by Human Sadri, a doctoral candidate and teacher from the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, who also co-hosts the Got Pop Popular Culture podcast. Human's moment comes from part two of Pyramids of Mars, a four-part serial from the middle of Tom Baker's second season in 1975. In this adventure, the Doctor and his companion Sarah Jane have landed in a spooky gothic manor in 1911. The master of the house, Marcus Scarman, has been away on an archaeological dig in Egypt, where he has awakened and subsequently been zombified by the sinister godlike alien being Sutek, like you do. Naturally, when the Doctor and Sarah arrive on Scarman's estate, they run afoul of alien robot mummies and team up with Lawrence Scarman, Marcus Scarman's brother, to prevent the zombified Scarman and his posse of mummy robots from building a missile that they intend to use to blow up a pyramid on the planet Mars. Did you follow all that? Well, sorry, none of it was particularly important, because Human's moment doesn't actually have that much to do with the plot of Pyramids of Mars, interesting as we all might find it. It's more to do with, well, actually, I'm just going to throw to him and let him tell it. I was four years old. My little sister had just been born a few days previously, and I had never seen Doctor Who before. I had no idea what Doctor Who was, but it was a Saturday afternoon, and I was pretty much left to my own devices at home, and I switched on the TV in time to see... Now, what my memory has told me is uh, a mummy chasing a woman through a field, but as we all know, and, you know, JNT is right sometimes, the memory cheats. It's not that at all. The moment that precedes my moment is actually the Doctor and Sarah Jane and Scarman being attacked in this little hut by mummies. And it ends with the sting. That noise of the Doctor Who theme, followed by the dissolve into that grey Tom Baker era time tunnel for the closing credits. And it's actually that sting, it's that tunnel that's my moment because it terrified me. It absolutely made me beside myself. I switched off the TV and for a good week afterwards, nobody was allowed to switch the TV on again if I was around in case that noise or whatever it was that affected me and the sight of that tunnel came back to get me. But then the following Saturday, I switched it back on again. Doctor Who in Pyramids of Mars, a story about an I guess I wanted to see what it was that scared me. And the awful power of an ancient god. And I, I was hooked from that. So that's my moment, because I'm often very interested to know what it is about this show that we love, that the people listening to this, uh, this podcast presumably love, what it is that hooked them. And for me, it was, it was weirdly that. It wasn't a doctor, it wasn't a companion, it wasn't a storyline. 
It was a noise. That's that's so interesting because I think a lot of people who come to Doctor Who these days come to it through binge watching. Yeah. So often the decision to watch this thing is intentional and orderly, whereas you kind of collided with it at at a moment where, on the one hand, they probably didn't intend for you to do that, but on the other hand, TV is always produced with the understanding that someone might turn it on at any moment. So I'm sure you're not the only person who's had an experience like that. Yeah. But you see, it, it also goes a little further than that because as you say nowadays people get into doctor who and if they're introduced to it with the new series they know they can go back one way or another and go and watch everything from christopher eccleston onwards i'm the doctor and who are you or even go back if, if they're brave enough and and see what that original show was all about have you ever thought what it's like but for me it wasn't like that and it was even less like that because i mean i'm, I'm british originally I'm swedish naturalized now and was born and pretty much grew up in the uk but for around the period after this, after my sister was born, my family didn't live in the UK. Just for a few years, we were away. So I probably didn't actually watch Doctor Who with slightly more discerning eyes, because what a four-year-old will get out of that show is very different to what, say, a nine-year-old would get out of it. Definitely. I didn't actually properly watch Doctor Who after this until, I think... Uh, you know the Daleks? Oh. Destiny of the Daleks. Better than you could possibly imagine. It's the first episode that I remember sitting down and watching as a conscious decision. Huh. Because after that, we were away very soon after what few episodes I will have seen in October and November of 1975. What I did is I discovered and immersed myself in Doctor Who via the Target novelization. Right, like, a, like a, I think a lot of people living in Britain during that era have a similar story. Well, exactly. I mean, you couldn't get hold of the episodes. If something was shown, it was gone. So I knew all four Doctors intimately by the time I actually properly saw one in action. So that moment at the end of Pyramids of Mars must have just got its claws into me, something chronic, I mean, something good and proper. Well, right, because I, I did some digging to see, well, was this ever repeated? When was the first chance you would have had to see the story again in its fullness? And apparently there was an omnibus version of the story that aired the following year in November. Yeah, I wouldn't have been there. I think the first time that I saw Pyramids of Mars properly, it was later on in the 90s, I'm pretty sure that I saw it on a, on a cable channel called UK Gold, hmm. an omnibus edition of Which would not have had the cliffhanger sting. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly that. And that would have also been me, you know, in my 20s. Hmm. So it's quite a long time. It's only now that, you know, I, I own the DVD that I'm able to go back. And that's why it was quite strange, because I've always had a particular image of what happened in my head. So when I went back, uh, you know, a little while ago and, and rewatched it, I thought, hang on, this isn't what I remember. I remember the, the sting. Mm. But there's a moment earlier in that episode where the mummies are chasing Sarah Jane. She's running from I saw a mummy, a walking mummy. And I guess I must have collated the two in my head. Huh. As I say, the memory cheats. Sure. So when you sat down to watch it as a small child, you watched the uh, the following episode, part three. What what was it that you were expecting to see? I literally don't remember, and I don't remember what I made of it. I mean, I suspect that I was probably challenging myself yeah. not to be scared. I don't know. I, I you know I have a, a friend and a colleague who's a, a, a professor of, of literature at Aarhus University in Denmark. His name is Matthias Klaassen, and he looks very much at horror fiction from the point of view of, of biocultural theory and biocultural literature. Literary theory is essentially literary Darwinism, mm. how evolution has affected the way we read and, and the stories that we tell and what it means to us. 
And he's very interested in that in horror and about why we're drawn to horror and why we're drawn to being scared. And, uh, and Doctor Who, I think, is quite an interesting case in point because we always talk about watching it from behind the sofa mm. and you know, from behind cushions. And now, as a parent, I have three kids and I've seen all three of them react to Doctor Who in similar ways. In fact, in the context of sound, I think my eldest son, who's, who's very nearly 14 now, he's the one who loves Doctor Who probably as much as I do, mm. to the point where he has encouraged me that we should do what Paul Cornell calls the, the pilgrimage. We've just got to the Macra Tower. There is no such thing as Macra! Macra do not exist! That's, that's a pretty good way through, because those, those early seasons are pretty long. Yeah, they are. But it was his idea, and I never saw him scared by TV at all, except for when we were watching Christopher Eccleston's first season, and, and Zander was a baby. He was basically toddling around. Nothing scared him. And there was in the episode... Da, da, Dalek. When the Dalek voice Impossible. first starts croaking into life, <laughs> he just stopped at the sound of that voice and just got the stricken look on his face and came running to us. And I just thought to myself, that's the same. I mean, he was a bit younger, but it was the same effect as me. It was sound that did it. Hmm. And that slightly uncanny, not quite right sound. I came to Doctor Who in my late teens. Yeah. The thing that scared me was the sound in the David Tennant episode, Midnight. Oh, wow. How could she do that? She's talking with that's, you. That's an episode that has with me. terrifying... Oh, my God sounds in it yeah. the set couldn't be more basic it's just it's the interior of a bus but the sound design in that is just so creepy both the voices and the the music and and everything about it, it it's i think it's one of the things that has the most capacity to startle us well there's a wrongness to no, it sky are you sky i mean but when the doctor is sky still in there sky this is sylvester are talking at exactly the same time saying the same thing in the same intonation you know exactly what i'm going to say how are you doing that we know from a genetic standpoint within ourselves we know that that is wrong that that is impossible mm. and so it sets us ill at ease i think this is what i mean i mean even the theme tune of doctor who not necessarily the more current versions but if you listen to the original it doesn't sound quite normal and normal is the wrong word I know but the theme tune sounds not of this earth yeah often the visuals the things that you're seeing are not worlds away from what you might be able to see on a stage yeah certainly in the example of the end of part two of pyramids of mars I mean there's nothing in there that's that's truly unnatural. I mean, there's a there's a big yeah. freaky looking mummy, but I mean that's that's a costume that you or I could assemble given time and resources. Whereas yeah. the sounds that you're hearing, especially when that that sting and that theme tune, and then transition into the strange mm. time tunnel effect, yeah. suddenly it's like the intrusion of something completely other into that space. And I would also argue, I mean, away from sound, as far as doctors go, Tom Baker himself, What's the matter? Mm. you should be glad to be going home. The Earth isn't my home, sir. It's scary in a way that no other Doctor is because he doesn't react to things. He, he plays the Doctor as an enemy. I'm a Time Lord. Oh, I know you're a Time Lord. And so... You don't understand the implication. He smiles when it is inappropriate that he smiles. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. What's that supposed but to mean? He be? makes a face or he frowns when it's inappropriate that he does that. It means I've lived for something like 750 years. Oh, I'd still be middle-aged. Yes! And you can never quite tell what he's doing. So all of that together puts it into some kind of, I mean, I, I don't want to say uncanny valley because that tends to mean something else nowadays, but it does do that. I, th I think this story more than most, even. Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely that. What do you think of the story overall? It's odd. Because this was the first story for me, I always sort of held it up as sort of a sine qua non. Mm. And it's not that. I don't think. I think it's a great story. I mean, I would put it up there. And I think that if we're looking at eras of Doctor Who, the Hinchcliffe era is something pretty special. But I don't think it is necessarily as a story quite as effective as some of the other things that have gone before or after. Although I'll always say to people, oh, you should see that one. That's a good one. To return to kind of the moment itself and your reaction to it, that kind of terrified reaction that was apparently so traumatic that you couldn't watch TV for days afterwards. No, no, no. They weren't allowed to turn it on when I was in the room. It was worse than that. Do you think that that sort of frightening uh, response to media, is that something that adults should expose children to or should avoid exposing them to or should just kind of let them be and let them find it on their own? I think that there is a tendency now to be a little bit too protective as far as media goes. I mean, every parent has the right to decide what's appropriate for their kid and not, and that's absolutely fine. But I think it's worth remembering that Doctor Who was conceived as, as a program for kids, hmm. or at least by the time of uh, Pyramids of Mars, it was at least still considered family entertainment. It went out at tea time on Saturday, sort of right after the football results. Hmm. The idea was that kids are resilient. Very often, I think it's more adults who get traumatized by this type of thing than kids. I have watched every series of the new Doctor Who with my kids. Hmm. I just figured that they were fine. If there was something that they didn't like or they didn't want to see, they would ask to switch it off. And at this point, they haven't. Because I actually think that we like to be scared. Yeah, I think that's why Doctor Who is successful, or at least was successful as a show in the 60s and 70s, is that it was something that was there to educate and entertain, but also to scare kids, because that's fun. And now, doing the, the pilgrimage... I see that there's a, a lot of stuff, maybe not in the first couple of seasons, but certainly the latter half of the Hartnell era and even into Troughton. There's stuff that I don't know necessarily that Doctor Who would get away with if it was on at a comparable time period today. In terms of being frightening? or Well, frightening. It's hard because the episode doesn't exist, but think of Katarina. Oh, and I knew it was to come. Yeah. What was to yeah. come, That I was to die. My dear child, you're not dead. That's nonsense. We are introduced to this very innocent, very sweet Trojan slave girl who comes with the doctor and we think, here's the new companion. She stays and then is immediately bumped off on a kid's TV program. Right. She wanted to save our lives. Must have been... Quick. Yeah, I think these days Doctor Who will go there but always retreat back. Like, um, yeah. for instance, Bill. You left me alone for 10 years. Don't tell me I can't be angry. What happens to Bill in uh, Series 10 because you're a cyberman. goes to places that I think are as dark as... Brent! Katarina! Katarina or Sarah Kingdom. Sarah. Yeah. What a terrible waste. But then retreats back and gives her a sort of fantasy afterlife. You're like me now. It's just a different kind of living. Well, same with Clara. Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, isn't uh, Stephen Moffat sort of on record as saying that he doesn't really believe in killing off a companion? Which is interesting because he manages to kill off every companion that he introduced. Exactly, yeah. Without actually doing it. Right. You think you'll just come back to life? When don't I? Rory. I mean, I'm unapologetically of the, the school that says that 
the Moffat era is one of the best we've had. But he does sort of end up with, uh, everyone does kind of get to live happily ever after. But if you compare that to the fact that in the original show, there was real peril. People didn't always get killed off, but they would get killed off. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching Adric die with my jaw wide open. Now I'll never know if I was right. Adric! I think, what? Did they just kill Adric? Right, and, and even in this story in Pyramids of Mars, characters we get to know and like are just discarded. Yeah. I mean, think of brother killing brother. Yeah, yeah. Marcus. That's dark. Your hands. He dies because he? he has faith that his what love will he? win his brother over. Marcus, please. Will save his brother, and instead his brother kills him. So I think there is an element where we are a little bit more sugar-coated now. Yeah. I don't think that kids necessarily need to be inured to the fact that it's a dark world out there. But uh, I also think it, it's sometimes good to have a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. With regard to the, the closing credits and, and the theme tune, what do you think is the impact of a theme tune and the opening and closing credits on a series? Like on Doctor Who in particular, but are there other TV series where you find that the opening and closing theme have provoked a reaction or have gotten you into a particular place? You know what? I think that the opening and closing credits of a show are a dying art. Mm. I mean, I love the streaming era. I'm no Luddite. I love it. But what I don't like, there was a time when the opening credits and the music to the opening credits of a show were so memorable. Mm. And can you name off the top of your head a TV show that is current, that has memorable opening credits and music i I think you have uh game of thrones people talk about that one but i mean for instance you take uh i think chilling adventures of sabrina has some nice uh, has a nice sequence but the music i couldn't tell you how it goes right right i am a fan of of star trek discovery Hmm. but uh not to the point where i would have it on a playlist which is not the case with obviously Doctor Who. Uh, you know, the Tom Baker Hinchcliffe era Doctor Who theme. In fact, the theme that I'm talking about now, the old closing credits with the sting is actually my ringtone. <laughs> uh, you know, that's where I'm at now. But I mean, something like Buffy yeah. or Angel, they really stand out as something which they help make their shows memorable. Mm. Uh, and I don't think we do that now. I think now, even, you know, you watch something on Netflix, it's always, you know, skip intro. Right. But right. I don't want to. I want the full experience. One of the only shows that I think does something similar to what Doctor Who did is, I don't know if you ever watched Lost. I'm a, I'm a great defender of Lost. Oh, God, yes. It's in my absolute top five favorite shows. I love Lost. Yeah. And I, and I love the final episode, too, and I'll <laughs> fight anyone who tells me otherwise. Oh, excellent. You're the, you're the second person to tell me that in as many days, and I'm on that same page with you, too. So. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Lost barely has an opening. It has... No. But the opening that it has is a, like a slow pan over the word Lost with this incredibly eerie yeah. sound over it, and a lot of... Things that happen in the show are punctuated either by like a slow building horn sound for dramatic things or like this powerful building whoosh, which signals a shift in time frame. That's another good example I have of like something kind of similar to what Doctor Who was doing in 1975 with the the cliffhanger sting as a sort of punctuation mark. Exactly. It's weird. It's different. It's uncanny. How do you feel about the, the current title sequence? I really like it. I kind of, and I, I know this is weird because we never used to have them before, but I kind of miss the cold open. Yeah. But at the same time, I really, really like what Sagan Akinola has done. I really, really enjoy his music a lot. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he sampled the original Delia Derbyshire 
is interesting. And I, I like the sort of the, the actual visuals sort of just seem to hark back to the original show. Do you think that uh, cliffhangers are an important part of Doctor Who? Yes and no. I think that they're an important part of the original show. And obviously, if you have a two-part or, or three-part story, cliffhangers are useful. But I do think that, um, especially watching it as we have done now, as we have done, my son and I now, sometimes the need to get a cliffhanger in can slightly hamstring an episode. But yeah, a good cliffhanger. It's definitely got merit. It gets people wanting to come back. That's one of the reasons why I kind of um, agreed with what you just mentioned about missing the cold open, because I think the cold open takes the function of a cliffhanger, sort of, yeah, and packs it into the first few minutes of the show. Pompeii. Oh, well, exactly. We're in Pompeii. And the first intense series and it's volcano of this show have been very, very good at that. I'm of the school who is willing to give Chris Chibnall a lot of slack. Mm. I've seen a lot of people be quite negative about series 11 but i sometimes do think that chibnall is trying so hard to take the show away from what it has been just to say oh this is a a fresh broom you know we're cleaning up we're changing things that i think that sometimes there's a danger in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. oh each one of these is going to be standalone there's not going to be a through line okay but why it's all right to have have a cliffhanger sometimes, even if it's just a Hartnell era style, you know, the story is over. Where are we now? Oh, look, we're on a strange planet. What's going to happen next? Well, yeah, and I think the woman who fell to Earth ending with the characters zapped into space, I think that's the only example in series 11. Yeah, well, exactly. And that's a great way to end an episode. It's a great way to end it. But the others, I mean, I think that that's something that people have had a problem with. It's a lack of consequence almost. I don't know. Something of a through line in this season of the moment might be me kind of working through how I feel about series 11. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm a harsh critic of it, but it didn't thrill me in the way that the the Moffat era kind of did. No, exactly. Same. And one of the things is I I think that even though Moffat, like we said, he he goes to the brink and then he pulls back, whereas I feel like sometimes Chibnall doesn't go to the brink and the lack of a cliffhanger is one of the factors there. It's not certainly not the only thing. But do you think that there are any times when in Chibnall's first series where sound or the theme or anything like that have been used to a similar effect? I think so to a point. I found the ending of Demons of the Punjab when uh, you hear the sung Indian Doctor Who theme. I found that incredibly moving. I've seen people describe it as hokey and I don't agree. I think it's fantastic. I'm trying to think about the modern show. If there's any, if if uh, four-year-old me fell down into a time tunnel and were to experience something in the modern iteration of the show, if there's anything that's comparable to the effect of Pyramids of Mars, but it's quite hard to acclimatize because I get, I'm not that kid anymore. Hmm. But I remember the things that really hit me, and obviously that was the first one that really affected me in a purely visceral way. Just this chance encounter with a sound sting and this, you know, the graphics of the grey time tunnel, which I still think has not been matched for spookiness in Doctor Mm. Who, sort of set me on a particular path for the rest of my life because the show and the character of the Doctor have pretty much informed the way that I am ever since. It's weird because this is something which comes much later, but, you know, in Twice Upon a Time, when the Twelfth Doctor is about to regenerate, Laugh hard. he gives a little speech to his next incarnation. The way that he sort of defines himself, kind. that's kind of how I, the way I always just subliminally tried to set my life as being. Hmm. And I guess it's the Doctor that did that. And the Doctor would not have done that if I hadn't been scared witless by the ending of <laughs> episode two of Pyramids of Mars. So it's something very special to me. 
And that has been another episode of The Moment to which you have listened, for which I thank you. And I also thank Human Sadri for joining me as my guest. If you'd like to follow him on Twitter, you can find him at Human Sadri. That's H-O-U-M-A-N-S-A-D-R-I. Human is a PhD candidate and lecturer in Sweden at the University of Gothenburg, and he co-hosts the Got Pop Popular Culture Podcast. You can find links to more information about both of those things, as well as other miscellaneous information about this show and its guests at themomentpod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TheMomentPod or on Instagram, also at TheMomentPod. And many thanks to those wonderful supporters who went to Patreon.com slash TheMomentPod to support the show with a few bucks. If you'd like to do the same, then that's awesome, and I thank you. Or a way you can support the show for free is to review it in Apple Podcasts or whatever other places have reviews for podcasts. I'm Tom Dickinson, and I'll be back in a moment.